Hi, this is Paul Van Wurdenberg, and I am just uh, uh, prefacing this episode with uh, the fact that we, we did not release an episode last week. I didn't think it would be appropriate uh, going with everything going on in the world. So it's a whole new um, chapter in our history where we're addressing some real disparities in our country. And um, I recorded this episode with Linda Pond. May 24th, 2020. And um, she actually brings up a lot of good topics on healthcare disparities in regards to uh, vulnerable populations and uh, racial disparities in this episode. So I think it's really pertinent to a lot that's going on. So I, I really hope you enjoy this episode. And uh, again, I just want to say how much I appreciated having Linda on to talk with me. So have a enjoy this episode. All right, welcome to another episode of Revolution RN. I am your host, Paul Van Wurdenberg, and I have the fortune to uh, be hosting a guest that I'm super excited about having today, uh, Linda Pond. Linda is the current Oregon Nurses Association president, and um, she also is a fellow Lane County resident here, and so I really appreciate all the things she does for uh, the state in nursing and the community here locally as well. So uh, Linda, do you want to introduce yourself? Well, certainly. Thank you for that introduction. I really appreciate your kind words. As Paul said, I am Linda Pond and I am currently serving as the president of Oregon Nurses Association. Oregon Nurses Association is a statewide organization that represents 15,000 nurses. In 1904, it started as a professional organization for nursing, and in the 70s, it became recognized, the organization recognized that nurses in the hospital setting needed protection in their workplaces because of, you know, unprecedented layoffs unsafe staffing issues, inability to do their job well, and they became a labor organization as well as a professional organization. In addition to that, we have a government relations arm that works tirelessly in Salem to promote the healthcare rights, the rights of healthcare workers, registered nurses at the bedside, and nurse practitioners. We were the first, one of the first states in the country to gain autonomy for our nurse practitioners, amongst other things. They have prescribing rights. They have a lot of really good things that nurse practitioners in other states don't have. So we've done a great job providing an incredible array of services to nurses across the state from CEs for their continuing education that are free to labor protections and the GR piece. And all during these times of COVID, all three of these arms have been working really tirelessly for the ONA members across the state. And I'm really proud to be part of that effort. So maybe before, maybe before we go there, is there anything that you would like to know before I go down that rabbit hole? You know, I, I mean, I'd like to just kind of get into it. I mean, I this is you just got elected to your second term as president. Congratulations, by the way. And that starts in July. Is that correct? Right, right. Okay, that's so cool. That's another two year term. And you I mean, you've you've were busy before, but now we have a whole new ball game with uh, the pandemic. And yeah, I mean, I just I'm seeing you a lot on 
uh, social media, in the press. Um, the organization as a whole is just really active at like keeping the public aware of what's going on for healthcare workers and sort of the risks associated with being a frontline healthcare worker. So what kinds of things are have you been involved with lately that you can tell people about? Well, early on, back, I think it was the, in February, actually, I was at a board meeting up in Tualatin, and one of the local Portland news stations wanted to interview me about how we were feeling about COVID. And one of the interesting questions that this gentleman asked me was, were nurses frightened? And we weren't really seeing COVID patients at the time, but it was really clear that the hospitals were not doing enough to provide us with PPE on the ground. And I'd been doing a lot of research about that and talking to people about what their concerns were. And my response to him was, no, we're not frightened. You know, we didn't go in, we went into nursing school and we became nurses because we know that we're going to be faced with this kind of thing. Nurses are a very dedicated profession that, well, the money that we make is nice. It's not why we became nurses. We became nurses because we care about humanity, because we care about improving the quality of life for human beings on the planet. And I said, you know, it's my direct experience and expectation that any organization that I work for has enough respect for me to provide me with the equipment that I need to do my job safely every single day that I show up on my unit. And that's not happening. That wasn't happening back in February, and it's not happening adequately currently in spite of everything that we hear. So, you know, from that moment on, sort of ONA's fight and my fight has been to really push, like you said, to push the PPE issue, keep it constantly in the forefront, and keep holding the organizations in the state that employ nurses, be it hospitals, be it public health organizations, um, be it nursing homes, whatever, wherever it is that nurses are employed, to keep them safe, provide them with PPE, and not PPE that's been scrubbed and quote-unquote sanitized and reused multiple times because all of us know that PPE is a single-use item for the most part, except for like face shields. But your masks, your N95s were not made to be used multiple times. And there's, I have, I know we have the, uh, what's it called? The battle resanitizing station here in Eugene now um, that can run masks, you know, hundreds of masks through in Masks go through the cycle 20 times before they're rendered invalid by whoever it is that makes these decisions. I question what happens the first time they run through this process. But um, so that's kind of like what my battle cry has been. My battle cry will continue to be. And interestingly enough, it's really also starting to shift from the PPE focus to Now I'm looking, and I know that ONA is looking at the fact that hospitals have gone from making it, let me back up a minute. One of the things that ONA started doing early on in this was negotiating um, memorandums of understandings with all of our facilities attempting to do these negotiations, and they would ensure that nurses didn't have to use their their own PTO should they be exposed and have to self-quarantine or that nurses wouldn't have to use their own PTO should they be 
become sick with COVID and have to take extended time off. Several of the major healthcare systems in the state came to the table with us and agreed that they would put these protections for nurses in place through the end of April. And part of what that was, was that they also created float pools, if you will, for nurses that worked in units that weren't COVID units and were seeing low census. They could go and they could work in other places in the hospital rather than having to take take low census. And now what we're seeing now with the state reopening to elective procedures that's really concerning to me, and it's not just this state, it's all across the country, is that hospitals are no longer agreeing to those protections so much. We are still at the table with administrations throughout the state and trying to keep those protections in place. I think there's a lot of places in the country where that's not necessarily true. It's just sort of like, oh, we, we can go back to elective procedures, business as usual. And what we're seeing in the state of Oregon is that now nurses are taking a whole lot more low census. And so that's really concerning. That is another piece of this COVID problem that I don't know when it's going to go away because the nurses that are taking low census are nurses that work in units that are not impacted by the um, increase in voluntary surgeries. And to me, that's really concerning. If you're not a COVID nurse or an OR nurse, you're kind of really in a lot of financial risk right now. So I know that the organization is really concerned about that and um, that we're really fighting to protect our nurses' rights as much as possible. There are small rural hospitals in Oregon that are actually saying they're probably going to have to close their doors. And that is true throughout the country. And so as I look at all of that and I read about all of this, the other thing that that sort of plays into what my concerns are currently are the racial inequities that are involved in all of this. And with that, speaking specifically to um, like what's happening in the Navajo Nation, what's happening out in Warm Springs here in Oregon, these are small, these are rural communities that do not have the healthcare facilities that the I-5 corridor has, that do not have the healthcare facilities that people that live in major cities have at their disposal. The same is true out on the coast. They're small, very financially crippled, I guess would be the right word, where if those little rural hospitals go out of business, these people have nowhere to go for their health care. And to me, that is really frightening. It's very concerning. And in some ways, it feels really targeted. You know, it's if I look at it on a political issue, I could just get really, really heated. And unfortunately, I think the political, it's, it is a political issue. It is an absolute crime that we have a government that refuses to fund health care in a manner that allows people to have health care for all um, and that has worked so effortlessly to scale back the health care rights that we had with Obamacare and just say, figure it out on your own, basically. So that's sort of like my moral dilemma at the moment that I'm struggling with, that I know that, you know, the board of directors of Oregon Nurses Association is also really, you know, they're very concerned with this as well. And so we have a meeting, a virtual meeting next week, and I'm sure that we will spend a lot of time figuring out what role, do, where, where do we move our agenda in this? You know, how do we move an agenda in this to protect 
the rural hospitals, to protect the nurses that work there, and to protect the people in the community that deserve local health care. So, you know, that's my little rant of the moment. Yeah, that's a, it's a lot. I mean, I don't, it's like, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be in a larger system that has sat down with nurses and sat with us with a bargaining t- table to, you know, hash out our needs. And, and I, it's just in those little rural communities, it's just such a, di- I mean, these are also represented hospitals and they're, no one's sitting down with them. And it's just like, they're, it's just, it's frustrating to see. It's like how, what other ways can we, what things can we do to reach out to, to help those communities? Cause they're just a part of um, our states as, as the larger big metropolitan areas. Right. Right. They're very much a part of our state and, you know, they're very frequently forgotten. So, you know, I think that that's something that we as nurse leaders all have a responsibility to be in tune with and start having conversations about how do we protect not just, you know, our colleagues in the facilities that we work in, but how do we go about supporting and protecting our colleagues and facilities in areas that we up until COVID probably hadn't given a whole lot of thought to. Yeah. I like to think about it as, you know, when you forget the, and I've lived in those communities before and I understand they're when, when they're having hard times, they're in all these, it, it just adds so much fear and fear in any community is just such a, it le- fear just in generally leads you to a lot of really rash decisions. And I think you can kind of see it in everything in the, in the country right now, those rash decisions. And then look what we're having to work with as far as like the, the leadership that's driving what's the conversations on how to care for each other. Right. Right. You know, and it's just sort of like, I don't want to get too partisan about this, you know? Um, But it's all, and having said that, it's also hard not to, when you have a leader of, you know, what is, touted to be the greatest nation in the in the world who refuses to wear a mask in public and refuses to support the rules of conduct of how best to not spread the disease and yet at the same time tweets out really insane things and sort of helps to breed that fear that you speak of it's really concerning to me um, yeah. and i think that we have an obligation to speak our truth to walk our truth, to wear our masks in public, maintain social distancing, not go to bars, and, you know, not go back to life as normal until we know that there is no, you know, until we have vaccines, you know, and we know that the vaccines are effective, that they're going to do their job, and there's no guarantee of any of that right now. And so you're right, fear is exact. it's a very scary time. And then you add on top of that the fear of losing your job or losing, you know, more than half your hours and then potentially having to second mortgage your house or lose your house. That's a lot for people to have to deal with. Yeah. And yes, like in those OR nurses, short stay nurses, those are are caring for these surgical patients. Like I'm really worried about their losing their hours. I mean, these people count on an income for their families. Exactly. It's really tough. It's just wild because like, you know, ner- it's like the reason nurses get in or the, the when we find our passion in nursing, it's like we become really advocates for our patients and our community. And then 
and then it just leads us to take a take a stand to like advocate for patient safety and our safety and our coworker safety. And then it's so cool that uh, you've gotten to take a, I mean, you've gotten to take a role that's so encompassing where you're, you're like the advocate of the advocates. And like, how has that been taking on that role? Because you, you've done it almost two years now, right? Yes, actually, I've been doing, yeah, I've actually been doing this kind of work for over 20 years. It's kind of crazy, because I never dreamed that this was why I came into nursing, you know, I always had this fantasy that I'd be, you know, like, um, the next Florence Nightingale, if you will. But I'm not that kind of a person, I guess. I, you know, started my nursing career late in life. Actually, I was in, I was 33 when I graduated from nursing school, got married and had my first child all at once. You know, I love doing bedside care. Labor and delivery is my specialty and NICU was my secondary specialty. And I love taking care of families that are starting out, being with women when they are critically ill in their pregnancy, then following the care of their babies that were born premature in NICU, and just being able to sort of like close those circles. And, you know, people would always say to me, oh, labor and delivery is such a great place to be. It's such a happy place. And yeah, well, that's true on one level. It's also a very tragic place at other times, just like any aspect of nursing. But I learned to advocate for my patients uh, pretty early on. And then I think it was back in 2000, after I'd been a nurse for a few years, I'd been a nurse for a few years by that time. And at the facility that I worked at, there was a lot that was going around going on around the fact that we did not have adequate safe equipment to do our jobs. Safe nursing, the ergonomics at our nursing stations were just terrible. A lot of people were getting injured. And so a couple of leaders from Oregon Nurses Association came down, Susan King, who was the executive director at the time, and um, Sue Davidson, who was the head of professional services, came down to hear the nurses' stories. And I had never gone to an ONA meeting before. And I had this really good friend who was our union um, rep, our unit rep. Uh, her name was Ina O'Connor, and she said, "Come on, Linda, you got to hear these stories." And so I went with her, and I sat there, and I was appalled at what I was hearing. You know what fellow nurses that work on the med surge units were going through, um, that worked in the ORs were going through, um, and in ICU, because uh, labor and delivery is kind of like you know a protected unit in the sense that because we take care of moms and babies, we don't float out to the rest of the house. We just float within our own, the women's services complex. So hearing what was going on out in the house and the way that nurses were being treated and the lack of respect that they had was just, like I said, so appalling to me. I wanted to do something. I wanted to become involved. So Susan King recommended that I sit on the PNCC, which is the Professional Nurse Practice Council, and that's in every facility by contract, represented facility by contract. And it addresses those same those issues, and it tries to, the people in those committees try to bridge the gap between the floor nurse and management and administration to move things so that nurses have safer working conditions. And that sort of evolved from that. I ended up like went to a couple of meetings and the chair resigned. And the next thing I knew, I was the chair of that committee. And I was able to do some pretty effective work there. And as a result of that, I was invited 
again by Susan, to participate in the and testify in Salem because in 2001, we were working on our first statewide staffing law. And it was the first staffing law in the nation that was going to be an acuity-based staffing law rather than a ratio-based staffing law. And so I went to Salem several times and testified and met started meeting nurse leaders from across the state that were also there testifying. It was scary for me because I really didn't feel like I had the right to be in the room, you know, because I'm just a, you know, I used to say I was just a lowly worm nurse and just trying to take care of my patient. But it's the lowly worm nurses trying to take care of their patients that are the people that absolutely need to be the voices in the room. And just to be clear, there's no such thing as a lowly worm nurse, except that I really love those child books, you know, Richard Scarry with lowly worm. Um, But that's a transgression. And about that same time, I got involved in the local bargaining unit and started negotiating contracts. And over time, I just kept evolving in my leadership roles, both in the hospital and um, statewide. I chaired the first ever staffing committee at the hospital that I worked at, and it was the first staffing committee in the state. And we actually became the gold standard for staffing committees because we were so effective. And that was about being able to communicate effectively with administration and sort of break down the barriers that were the us and them barriers and recognizing that everybody that was at that table had a common goal and the common goal was safe patient care and what did it take and obviously administration has one take on it because they're looking at the checkbook and nurses have another take on it because they're the ones at the bedside looking at the patient so it's like how do you break down the barriers to communicate what each side's needs are and come to a place where you're meeting in the middle and able to sort of move the agenda forward to ensure that patients have safe care that nurses have the equipment that they need at the bedside and that administration is willing to spend the money and at the time that I was getting involved in this, it was pre-corporatization of healthcare, but just barely. The most discouraging thing in my entire career was seeing the erosion of the ability for nurses at the bedside to achieve their goal of safe patient care due to the corporatization of healthcare. Because the moment healthcare started corporatizing and going from being independently owned to being conglomerates, the willingness to negotiate spending money to provide care for patients really narrowed significantly. And so I continued, you know, fighting at the local level until I retired last year. And it's more and more discouraging. Fortunately, I worked um, like you at a facility that actually you know, it's went through a really, really rocky time where they weren't willing to listen to nurses at all. And we took our fight public and the community gave us support and allowed us to sort of come back to the table with some dignity and um, make some headway on what our requests were. And we'd no sooner make headway in one area than they'd come back at another area. You know, we got a, landed a great contract and then they came back and then they said, okay, now we're going to take charge nurses out of the bargaining unit and make them sort of lower level managers. And then we had to go back to the table and fight against that. And we won. And then it was like, okay, now we're going to shift everybody from eight hour shifts to 12 hour shifts. 
And they wanted to do that throughout the house. And we went back to the table and we were able to gain some ground back on that. So, you know, for every step forward we take, it's like we almost have to take two steps backward and then come back at it again. And I don't see that changing ever. Meanwhile, I was approached to be at the state level to be on the cabinet of of economic and general welfare, which is the labor cabinet of ONA. And That was incredibly exciting work because what we did, we oversaw the works of the Labor Department, but what we did that was so exciting and so important was that we hear nurses, when a nurse is disciplined in a hospital and their labor rep files a grievance to um, contest that discipline, there's, it's a three-step process, and the first step is the nurse, the labor rep, and the manager sit down and sort of plead their sides of the story, if you will, and inevitably the manager um, turns down the grievance at step one, and then it goes to step two where a higher-level manager hears it, and then if it doesn't get resolved at step two, it goes to step three where the nurse, the CNO, hears it, and then if it gets turned down at step three, the nurse has the right to request that it go to the labor cabinet to be reviewed for arbitration. And arbitration is where you get the hospital attorney and the union attorney together in a room, and there is a third party, an arbitrator there who hears both sides of the the story and then determines whether or not the hospital has valid grounds for whatever corrective action it was that they brought against that nurse. Our request always is that the nurse be made whole, that, you know, they, it's, that they their job be restored and that their wages be restored back to the day that they were terminated. And we had some re- we have had really great successes and we've had some not so you know and we've also not had success. But at least it is a way to do justice for a nurse that rather than just have them have to just walk away and not have any recourse at all. It's a long process. It takes over a year sometimes. So it can be a pretty big financial hit for the hospital if they lose. And so being part of, I was part of that, I was a member of the cabinet for two years and then I became the chair of it. Long, ultimately served six years on it before I ended up moving up to the board. We also at that time merged with AFT. So I have the pleasure of being able to work nationally with American Federation of Teachers, to, which has been really important right now to move this COVID agenda, because I'll tell you, those folks are working tirelessly in Washington, D.C. to hold the federal government accountable to the healthcare profession and to the teaching profession. Randy Weingarten, the president of that organization, is on the Hill every day. She is very public with her concerns about reopening the schools, about the lack of PPE for the hospital. And they actually just spent over $3 million purchasing PPE for nurses in the, throughout the country. And the state of the nurses in Oregon this week at Oregon Nurses Association, we are receiving 22 cases of surgical masks. I'm not sure how many N95s and a couple of hundred face shields, I think. So, and that's through AFT, taking our union dues that we pay them, going out, finding a source for PPE and ensuring that the nurses on the ground have protection. We will, the board will be looking at how best to distribute that PPE to nurses throughout the state. And I'm super excited about it. I think that that's just a really great relationship to have with your national affiliate. 
So you, yeah, that's awesome. So, so you, so you had that moment. So that that's how you got started. Your friend brought you along to like just your nurses association. Was it a presentation? No, it was a, um, it was just, you know, people coming, two people from the, from ONA coming down and saying, what are the issues in this facility? And then what they, what they did that was they actually wrote a report to Oregon Health Authority and the facility was fined for um, not providing appropriate equipment for the nurses to do their jobs. I think that's such an important step is just to, yeah, just we, we do, we work in a difficult industry. And especially because it's, like you said, like this, this corporation that wants to put dollar signs on everything. And we're just trying to, I mean, we, you can't sustain on that. That, get, that gives us no meaning, right? Mm-hmm. We're just trying to provide the care we want to provide or else it just doesn't work and so it's so great to like hear that that instance where that you had the agreement to go and that friend reached out to you to to list take a take a listen to something right and she continued to be sort of a mentor for me for the next couple of years and she actually ended up leaving the facility and I stepped up and took on her role as the unit rep and I think You know, what I found for myself as I have done this work is in my nascent phase of it, I was angry. And, you know, it was just sort of like I didn't have any bones about letting administration know how angry I was with them. As I evolved in my role, I realized that there's ways to express that anger that are effective and create and, you know, get results. And there's ways to express it that just put up barriers to being able to move any agenda forward. So I really had to work on my communication style when I was at the negotiating table and my communication style when I was representing a nurse that had been disciplined to be as effective as I could be for the nurses that I was trying to represent. I think one of the greatest honors I ever had was when one of my kids said, Mom, you're just like the Lorax, except that you speak for the nurses. And um, <laughs> I love that. Anybody that lives in Oregon know, should know, you know what the Lorax is. Um, and I was just like, oh, my God, that's like the nicest thing anybody ever said about what I do, you know? Yeah, that's, oh, man, yeah. I really feel that statement. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. And then, you know, when we merged with AFT, I met this great woman. Her name is Ann Toomey, and she was the head of the New Jersey Nurses Association, deeply involved in AFT. She's a vice president of AFT. And she had never heard of that book. So I actually ended up, you know, jumping online the day that I met her and ordered her a copy of it. And it's just sort of like now there's like this little thing going around about the Lorax. It's an insider thing, but it's kind of fun. I just, yeah, I just think it's like any, any of this stuff, it's like you get involved and then there is that point where you kind of learn, how, you know, especially if you're getting involved in your hospital organization where you, you get to meet what, how the things work, how they make the sausages. And it's kind of hor- horrifying sometimes. Right, but right. They- <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, that's a great it's analogy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I describe it as uh, meeting, uh, uh, meeting the wizard. And see, see mm-hmm. it's just some guy, you know, and they're just like, oh, no, oh, no, these people, <laughs> this is what's running the thing. Yeah, especially oh, when they have no nursing background. Yeah, It's like, how on earth can you run a healthcare organization with no nursing background, with no medical background? You go to school, you get your business degree, you learn how to inventory widgets and how to practice the lean model of widget 
management. And then you come to a healthcare profession and you're the CEO of that organization. And all you see is widgets lying in a bed. That to me is the most dis- you know, disgusting thing about corporatization of healthcare is it totally removes the humanity from the profession. And yeah, it cre- tries to turn us into like algorithms to yeah, 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 exactly. Step by step by step. And then we just, it removes that like human point that we bring to each each of our, the people we take care of. You know, I think that there are some facilities. The one where you work at isn't a good example where, you know, they've gone through widget management and 101 and they currently have a chief nursing officer who is an RN and who is committed to the community and quality of life in the community. And she is committed to the quality of life for her nurses. And I think that she's kind of between a rock and a hard spot where her heart is really with the nurses at the bedside, but her mind is trapped by the corporation that she works for. And yeah, it's like fighting that system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But she's, and she's also a, she's been a member of this community. Right. Exactly. She's, she's got a difficult job from what I'm hearing. I think that she's doing a decent job of it. But I, and I also know that there's other hospitals throughout the state where that's not the case. You know, the CNO is so far removed from the nurses at the bedside that even though she's an R, she or he is an RN, they, they, they're more attached to the corporation that controls them. Yeah. Or yeah, they just, they never consider. Yeah. I I have seen those examples of, they don't consider what well, what happen if I decided to go back to the bedside and deal with the consequences that were made? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's something I just like to see more people taking that consideration when they're taking on these leadership roles, right? For these systems, right. and I get that it's hard because it's yeah, the systems that they're working in they need some work for sure. You know, and nothing irritates me more than seeing a manager put on scrubs and walk around the unit like they're doing something useful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> horrible it's a horror show right right (laughs) but yeah yeah that's i i really i'm really glad you shared like you know that it was you never pictured this what you're doing now and then and here you are you start the momentum and it's just like a snowball rolling down the hill just yeah that's exactly right i mean it, it really did just evolve into this whole other place of being you know and it was interesting to me when I did retire and when they did my retirement party they two other nurses retired at the same time and so we had a joint party and you know how when you have these gatherings and people consume a lot of wine and then they get up and then they do little accolades to the people that are retiring and the nurses that I retired with they got a lot of kudos for their bedside care. And then when they were doing accolades for me, I got, you know, they got up there and it was all about how I took care of the nurses. It took me a while to appreciate what that acknowledgement was. You know, that it was like, yeah, I did really good patient care and that was acknowledged as well. But then what was really acknowledged was that to my colleagues, the higher the higher kudos they could give me was that I took care of them. That's pretty amazing. It's really amazing. I've worked in various environments, and they get stressful. 
they get really stressful and, and scary sometimes and we lean on each other and so it's hard to watch when they're getting hammered down by something that you know we it tends to make uh, there I've, I've met so many people who've really like acted on that impulse and decided to be like enough is enough like i can't i can't stand my my you know my brothers and sisters my siblings going through this type of thing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, yeah and and it's just like i i really appreciate what you what you've stepped up into because i know it takes up a lot of your time and it's i'm just so grateful for people like you well thank you you know it's um i think in some ways it's as much of a calling as being a nurse is yeah totally so well yeah so what thank you for sharing your story and what uh, what's on the horizon for Linda Pond? What are we what are we seeing? What what's in the future here, or what's in, what's in the now? Well, that's that's a great question. I'm not really certain. Uh, I still do. I have a per diem job currently at a local doctor's office, going in and you know being a labor and delivery nurse. I go in and I do fetal non-stress tests on a per diem basis uh, for pregnant women in town, and that's pretty fun. I'm not sure, you know how long that will last. My husband still works, so he's a landscape contractor and he goes out and he does his jobs. You know, I don't know that I won't, I don't imagine myself ever not being involved in something. You know, whether it is, you know, as this presidency winds down, what my next volunteer gig, if you will, will be, it has to be doing something that is dedicated to leveling the playing field, if you will, to the degree that in terms of healthcare disparity, that's huge. That is really, really huge. You know, I look at, like I mentioned earlier, what's happening to communities of color throughout the country, what's happening to the homeless communities, what's happening to the transgender communities. And it's just sort of like somewhere we as a society have to wake up and recognize that you can't keep oppressing people if you want to have any kind of it's not so much quality of life it's just that you just can't keep oppressing people so I feel like somewhere in that statement there's some work for me to do and I don't know what that looks like yet well I'm sure I will see it I'm pretty yeah I'm excited for you yeah right (laughs) that's a big one it's a big one no but yeah I think I think that's the yeah, I think that's great. I mean, it's like those, it's like the reason why people get behind you. You have this big overall goal for generally everybody. And that's why when you speak and advocate for people, we're all listening because it's, it's clear that it's a, it's, a, it's bigger than just nursing with you. Right. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, we started doing equity and inclusion work a couple of years ago at ONA. It's, um, I always thought that I was pretty savvy and I've, you know, since learned that, oh my gosh, there is so much more to oppression than I ever realized. And, you know, looking at what my personal role in that is and the role of people around me in my life and how to move forward, improve the situation. So that's kind of it. And that's just sort of, you know, what I keep looking at. And the more articles I read, the more I'm just like, holy moly. ProPublica did a really interesting one recently, just a couple of days ago on the healthcare in Mississippi, how 
the, the name of the article was The Black American Amputation Epidemic. And I would encourage everyone out there to look that article up and read it and know that it's, you know, it is a really painful thing to read because it's how people with diabetes in Mississippi, they don't get pre, they don't get pre-screening for neuropathy issues. And you know how with diabetics, the uh, vessels, they get plaque built up inside of them and they don't, so they don't do any pre-screening of any angiograms or anything on these vessels for patients that um, have circulation issues in their legs. They just chop the legs off. Oh, wow. I mean, that's that's the essence of the story. And it's just, this article is about one man who's a cardiologist who is a man of color who is trying to correct that and how the biggest issue is evidently that Medicare won't pay for the pre-screening. They won't pay for the preventive care, but they will pay for the amputation and for all of the complications that follow that amputation. So yeah. that is just such a screaming example of how what's wrong with our healthcare system today and the way that our healthcare system is funded. And I think that that's what we all need to look at and as a way of starting to reverse that disparate trend that I was speaking of um, in that discrimination. Because you know that the white people in Mississippi aren't getting their legs chopped off unless they're extremely poor. And um, yeah. so that to me was like the most blatant example, like I said, of what's wrong with our healthcare system, what's wrong with our society as a whole. That's what I'm looking at. Yeah, it needs a big overhaul. But yeah, I'm, wow, yeah, I'll definitely look that one up. I hope everybody else does too. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely worth the read. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, Linda. I Again, I just really appreciate you spending time with me and talking with me. I just... I find you to be a very inspiring person. I'm really happy to get to share a community with you now um, and be a part of the organizations that you've, you're advocating for. Yeah, is there any, how, do, how can people find you if they have questions or want to reach out to the organization? The best way to reach out to me is my email is president at OregonRN.org. So they can shoot me an email, they can give me a call, my telephone number with the organization is uh, 503-293-0011, extension 1344. Yeah, in case people have questions, yeah, reach out. And we're a lot of us are involved, and we like to we like to get more people involved. If you want, if you really want to, if you feel the calling. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I I think that. I think that we have to be more involved, you know, and also yeah. I know for me, yeah, it's, it's, especially when I was working full time, it was hugely time consuming. I know that that's a consideration for people, especially when you have young kids at home, but I think that we can all find one little thing that we can do to improve our working environment or improve, whether it's volunteering in your schools, whether it's, you know, doing some volunteer work in your workplace, in your church, in your community. It's just some way of reaching out and taking that extra little step to improve the situation for the people around you or the people in your community globally. It's so important, I think, to take that extra little step and the risk and put yourself out there. It, it For me personally, it makes a huge difference in my life. Yeah, that's that's really great advice. So, uh, yeah, I, 
I hope we can do this again sometime. This was super fun. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, Linda. Mm -hmm. Take care. All right, take care. So I just wanted to record uh, one other thing before I close out this episode. This was a poem that was shared at one of my morning meetings. Uh, it was really, really touched me a lot, and I just wanted to share it. Uh, this is from a local poet, Daniel Beatty. Uh, that's D-A-N-I-E-L, Beatty, B-E-A-T-Y. And this really helped us that morning process what was happening in the world. And I, uh, so I just thought it might be pertinent to share. So it's called Dear Future Ancestor. Dear Future Ancestor, if I could take all your pain, wrap it in my arms, and toss it into the depth of the middle passage where countless tears have filled waters stretching from Africa to these Americas, I would. If I could take your rage and ball it into a collective fist and smash injustice into a thousand pieces of light, carving a path for future generations, I would. If I could whisper into the soul of every black child, confused, trembling in fear, you are safe, you are protected, your black lives matter, I would. If I could promise every black parent that nothing can assassinate the promise you birthed into creation, your seed will flourish. It must. I would. If I could assure every lover that the body you hold is sacred, is the peace of God, is a miracle. Your courage to love is your heart's lubrication and though you are afraid, now is the time to love more. I would. If my spirit could inhabit every body that fears you, illuminate their hearts, their minds, their eyes, to the beauty of your divinity, shine light on the oneness of our shared humanity, I would. Because I cannot. Please know these words. You are the king, the Malcolm, the Tubman, the Truth, the Robeson, the Simone, the direction and the promise. Now, you are the feet that march, the bodies hosed and arrested, the songs of freedom sung loud, the collective action. Now, you are the architects of freedom, the late night camp meetings, the minds that strategize a clear, precise agenda for change now. You are the rage and the pain. You are the hope and the vision. Even though your heart is breaking, you are the salve. Now, future ancestors, know yourself. It is when we are under attack that we must know the unlimited power of black soul it is time to mobilize and act now. Future ancestor, earn your place amongst the legion of heroes past. Breathe deep. Look inside. We are here in your brother, sister's eyes. We are here now. Future ancestor, who are you? Do you truly know your power? 
then what are you going to do now? So I just really found that to be so powerful. I hope you don't mind me sharing. Thank you.